0: could you please pronounce your name correctly for me
1: tatiana ginsburg
0: and you work at a place that i already forgot how to say the name could you please pronounce the name of the organization you work for
1: sure it's du it's a french name actually it means you know God's grace or from gift of God, and it was a family name in our founder, Sue Gozen's family. And so if she had been born a boy, she would have been given that name as part of her name. But she thought that paper, paper making in a way is a gift from God and a gift you know, from the divine. So she liked the name for the organization. And it, it is a wonderful name, but it also causes us no end of trouble because a lot of people can't pronounce it and don't know what it has to do with paper making.
0: I understand. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting because I was thinking about this before getting on with you about like just the nature of like different cultures and how they relate to paper and or making their own papers because I grew up in the United States where it's mostly you know, production run papers, but I've lived in other places and visited other places throughout the world that the paper is a very much part of the culture um, and things like this. So like, how do you, how is it in America right now? So like, are you finding more people interested in the, the hand papers or, or is it, you know? Is the interest still production
1: Um uh, I would say that there's more people interested in handmade paper than there were. I mean, certainly when Dudenay started in 1976, there were not a lot of people making paper by hand in this country for any reason, let alone really making paper by hand as a kind of creative act or working with artists. So that was kind of the idea behind starting Dudenay was to sort of use papermaking as As an art making process, as an art form, and slowly drifted more from production paper, you know, just making paper for artists to take home and use, to what we do now, which is really focused on working with artists in wet processes in the studio. The interesting thing for me. I have been making paper for many years. I was actually an intern at Dudenay when I was in college, which was, you know, over a quarter of a century ago. So, you know, I have a sort of history myself with Dudenay, but I see so many more people now who have made paper And we get school groups and kids are like, oh, yeah, I made paper once or, you know, or something like that. So definitely more people seem to know a little bit about handmade paper, even if they don't use it. And it seems like more artists kind of understand the idea of why you might want to use handmade paper instead of just a machine made paper. So I think that that has changed over over time, you know. And that essentially, papermaking is kind of a little bit more opened up to people, both from an artistic standpoint and just from a sort of, hey, let's try this kind of DIY standpoint.
0: Sure. I remember doing stuff from like fabric, like denim and and like cutting up old jeans and then sort of beating them down in the beater and sort of. So, you know, the, the variety of. Uh, materials that can be used can be very DIY and done in your kitchen with a Cuisinart all the way up to, you know, Mulberry and some of the, the finer stuff that takes a little bit more work and exactly, finesse.
1: Exactly, exactly. Well, since Dudenay started in, in Soho in the sort of, which at the time had a lot of garment industry, so there was a lot of offcuts of fabric. All of the papers originally were from rag so just using either old materials from you know that people donated or from artists who specifically wanted to use you know their old jeans or their grandmother's sheets or something to things that could be sort of locally sourced from offcuts and we still use material like that we actually have this sort of rag cutter an industry rag cutter that we cut rag on and we still make paper from linen and things like that So, we do still make some rag papers, although we have shifted mostly to using cotton and abaca and other materials that many of which are partially processed for the paper industry, and then other things, as you said, like paper, mulberry, cozo fibers, things like that, that we have to either source. I just order some from Japan. So sometimes you have to get it from far away. And sometimes we can get it locally from a papermaking supplier, because there are more people interested in paper, there are more places that you can buy materials. So, you know, years ago, you couldn't buy anything for papermaking, you just had to make it all yourself. And now there's places where you can get papermaking equipment, you have people who are interested in, in making their own equipment. But you know, there's some very good materials and very good machinery that's being made by a few people who are dedicated.
0: Certainly. Now, one thing that I also doing a little research about you beforehand, I noticed that you and I are very similar in our geographical education. Uh, I was raised in Washington, DC. Sounds like you were raised in New York.
1: Yes. Yes. Yes.
0: I went to the University of Iowa. And so did you.
1: Right. Yeah. That's funny.
0: Yeah. And then I went to the San Francisco Art Institute and you went to Santa Barbara. So both you and I sort of did East Coast Center and then West Coast for our educations.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, you know, for many artists, it's probably true for you too, that it takes time to find all the right people to study with and to do the things you want to do and to learn what you want to learn. And I sometimes think, well, I had a sort of circuitous route in some ways, you know, I went to college more than once. And I went to graduate school at the University of Iowa Center for the Book, which didn't have an MFA at the time. And I got a certificate there. And then I sort of did have to go get an MFA. So, you know, it takes some time, but I wouldn't trade any of it. You know, it's all, all the different experiences teach you different things.
0: Okay, there's something wrong with the University of Iowa because they promised me a degree in Native American studies. And when I showed up there, the degree didn't exist. Like So I had to change my degree literally on the spot in the advisor's office because they were just like, oh, you came for the name of America said, well, we're just starting that program. You can't actually get a degree in that yet. And I'm like, great. I moved all the way here for this degree.
1: Wow. Wow. Well, it wasn't quite that bad for me because I knew that okay. they didn't have the MFA yet. And I knew, but that they thought they would get it. And they didn't get it for many years after that until actually Tim Barrett got a MacArthur Genius Award. And then he, you know, running the program and being the person sort of in charge of papermaking, all of a sudden the university realized like, hey, we have something pretty special here. And, you know.
0: Yeah. I was there before you. I I graduated from Iowa in 95 and you were out in what, 2000 something?
1: Yeah, I think I finished, I was there from 2001 to 2003 for the certificate program. And so I I took a good amount of time off between going to undergrad and then deciding to go back to school. And then after going to the University of Iowa, I went to Japan on a Fulbright researching natural dyes and Japanese paper. And then after all of that, I thought, you know, I should still get an MFA So I came back to the US and ended up in California at UC Santa Barbara.
0: Okay, well, let's take a step back though. So how did you come to being creative in the first place? Were your parents creative? Did you have some great teachers? Like what was your childhood like?
1: I think both, I had great teachers and my parents are not in creative industries, but in a sense they are. Like my father is an architect and so I grew up- Very creative. Yeah, yeah. His office was in our house, one floor of my parents' house. So I would come home from school and, you know, like all kids coming home from school sort of need to be occupied. So I drew a lot on old blueprints and floor plans and things like that, you know, using templates and things that they use back before architecture was all on the computer, you know, when it was all model making and kind of a lot of, you know, physically building and drawing things. So that I think really had a lot to do with how I see things. You know, I spent a lot of time looking at bird's eye views of rooms. And I think that had a lot to do with sort of my creative life. And then growing up in in New York, in Greenwich Village, with a lot of artists around, my parents had a lot of friends who were artists and people that we that I went to school with, you know, their parents were artists. So it seemed very much part of life. Not that there wasn't a, a real disconnect for me in figuring out like, okay, so, but how do you, how do you make a living doing any of that? Cause that's the big problem, right? You know, my father would always say, well, you find something you like to do and you figure out how to make a living at it. And I'm like, yeah, but the second part of that is the hard part, right?
0: It is my wife and I have this debate constantly because she's, of a culture she's Czech, so she's of a culture where it's you know get a job and then be happy uh, you know right. so like find find a living and, and then be happy and i'm like no but i want to be happy at work my my family is very much in the same vein as yours is basically you know follow your happiness kind of the the silly thing like um what is it it's uh if you love what you do you never work a day in your life
1: right Right, so it's, I mean, I I think uh, everybody struggles with that unless you get somehow magically incredibly lucky and it just like all clicks for you instantly. I mean, now when I look back over my life, I see that paper's been part of it for forever and as you know, that I've always sort of been interested in paper since I was little and my husband likes to say it's because my family is like has so many allergies and we have so many different boxes of tissues that we got really like sensitive to qualities of paper. But I actually think it probably has more to do with, you know, origami and drawing on different papers as a kid and all of those kinds of, you know, ways of folding paper, handling paper, constructing things with paper that got me interested in it. I guess I never made paper till I was in college. So as an undergrad, I went to Sarah Lawrence. And my professor, Chris Phillips, had built a kind of Holmaine Hollander beater and figured out kind of how to do some rudimentary papermaking. And I immediately loved it, but I didn't really know what to do with it at the time, you know. And I was interested in printmaking. I thought, maybe I'll make some paper that I can print on. And of course, I couldn't make paper well enough to print on it. And very quickly, I realized that paper was its own whole world that you could, you know, a rabbit hole, you could fall down very happily. And that that in and of itself could become something that was not only an art form, but was sort of well, I mean, I guess it's kind of an alchemical process. You know, you take almost nothing, you take almost no materials. So instead of drawing on something that you bought or that you receive as a substrate, you're making the substrate. And that, for me, has always been really fascinating. I can never kind of get over the ability to just say, what, what could this be? You know, what can this be from scratch? How could I make this paper? that does exactly all the things i want it to do it absorbs more it absorbs less it's rigid it's flexible it's translucent it's opaque it folds it doesn't fold it's hard it's rattly you know the sounds of paper we spend a lot of time thinking about so you know that for me is sort of endlessly fascinating
0: yeah that's really interesting. like i come from a photography background so and printmaking also and so, like, my relationship to paper is more as a medium to put my artwork on. So, like, I don't think of it as a thing. Don't get me wrong. I love good paper. I am a horrible paper snob when it comes to the things that I choose to put my stuff on. But I don't think of it as as the the medium itself but i've been talking to a lot of people who seem to have found this medium fritzi huber is another paper maker mm-hmm. uh, that i've had on the podcast before same with tom balbo and a whole bunch and gretchen uh, who've all you know do this sort of uh, more of the the substrate itself is the material the creative material instead of something that's built upon it so it's a different perspective and different way to approach it i guess
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, for some, you know, in my job now at Dudenay, a lot of my job is essentially helping artists who maybe like you come from another medium primarily and have an interest in paper, but don't know very much about paper making itself or like how to achieve things that they might want to achieve in paper. And so my job running the studio with Amy Jacobs, we sort of together figure out with artists how to make what they want to make and there's moments where of course you run up against the physical limitations of the medium but a lot of times it's sort of up to us just creatively to figure out how can we make something that just doesn't seem even like it's going to be possible work in paper and how can we help an artist who's coming to us with this idea make what they want to make And that actually keeps us, it keeps us like lively, you know, it keeps us on our toes. We don't just make the same stuff all the time because, you know, once you know a medium well, you can sort of have your favorite things or favorite approaches to things. But, you know, bringing in artists who don't know anything about the medium, they push us with their questions like, can it do this? Can it do that?
0: (laughs) Well, I've got a question I hope does just that. By pure definition, what is paper?
1: So paper, it's kind of interesting, actually. You would think it would be like a very quick and easy definition. And there's actually, just like all industries, probably a lot of debate about it. But the key thing with paper is that it has to be something, a cellulose fiber macerated. So it's chewed up it's filibrated, it's taken apart and then re-put back together to form a sheet or to form a surface of some kind. So the earliest paper makers often said to be the wasp because that's what they do, right? They sort of chew up materials and they create something that's basically paper out of their sort of processing, but we, in our studio are processing cotton or abaca or hemp or flax or some other kinds of fibers, mulberry, etc., and beating them literally to a pulp. So we we break down these fibers and then it paper making is just really fiber and water. The longer that you beat a fiber, the more water it will hold the more water molecules will hold to it so the longer that you beat it the more when you form a sheet it takes longer time to drain it's you know a slower process but you generally get sort of more even sheet formation but usually also you get more and more shrinkage because all that water when it goes away the paper shrinks up so there's things that we manipulate in the process of beading and in the process of choosing the fibers or how we treat them we can make papers from the same materials that have very different qualities so they can be you know very flexible or very stiff
0: okay for the layman for the the person that's out there listening to this and has never made paper before how much time are you talking about you're saying like a little bit of beading a lot of beading How many hours are you talking about? Because this is, some people might think like, oh, I can make paper in 20 minutes. Like, it's not that.
1: (laughs) It's not a fast process. Our sort of standard recipes, our shortest recipe is 30 minutes, but most of our papers are made. We have, we make regularly eight-hour abaca, 10-hour linen. We make pulp paints, which are basically something that acts like paint, but it is actually made out of paper pulp with pigment in it. We make pulp paints out of pulps that have been beaten 13, 14 hours on a regular basis. So it's a long time. And those are things that are beaten in a Hollander beater by a machine, but still the machine's got to be doing it.
0: I remember Tom talking about one that he did for 36 hours. That's insane,
1: but yes.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah but he had a good, good machine, I guess. All right. So let's get to Doudonnet. Did I pronounce it correctly?
1: Very good. Yes.
0: Okay. Your position is the director of artistic projects and master collaborator. So Give me a sort of a broad stroke idea of what is it that that entails?
1: Well, being a collaborator, it's just, it is a strange title in some ways. And I think it, it seems a little bit odd for some people, right? But being an artistic you know, director of artistic projects, I think that kind of makes sense, you know, so if artists are coming to us with the projects, Amy Jacobs and I are the people who are essentially f- helping them figure out what to do with that project, how to make it physically, and what projects we're actually gonna take on, what, what artists we're gonna work with. Some of that's, uh, cause we're a nonprofit, some of that's decided by our board, but a lot of it's also decided by us in the studio, you know, what we think we can make that's gonna work well. So that's artistic projects, right? So that could be anything from, we make you 25 sheets of paper that you're gonna print something on in another studio to, and much more likely to something that the whole work, the creative process, all of it's gonna happen pretty much in the wet studio at Dudenay. And being a master collaborator, in some ways, I'm basically a master paper maker, just like in printmaking, there's master printers, so somebody who's very versed in that process and understands all of its technicalities and can really work with people. But We use the term collaborator because we really think of this as a collaborative work, not a work that can be made just by an artist coming in and we kind of let you run free and go to it, but something that's kind of made in dialogue and made between the discussions, the physical work, making tests and samples, letting things dry, me coming up with ideas for you as an artist coming in, you coming back to me with feedback and saying, that doesn't work with what I'm trying to do, but how about we try this? So it's this back and forth that is the sort of heart of Dudenay is really collaborating.
0: Right, and so you offer classes, fellowships, and residencies. I'm, the classes, to me, kind of obvious. I think everybody understands that stuff. The fellowships and the residencies, I think, are most interesting. I love the idea of residencies. And, of course, right now it's very difficult with COVID and all that, but still, nonetheless, residencies are really quite enticing. So how is your residency sort of structured and what does it to entail?
1: We have two different residency programs. So we have one for emerging artists and that... We take four artists a year. Emerging is self-defined. So we have had people who are in their mid-20s and we've had people who are in their 60s. And basically it just means, you know, that they aren't already very well represented by a gallery or having had already a lot of kind of those opportunities. And then we have a mid-career residency called Lab Grant. So lab grant is usually for an artist who's pretty well established and they have a good, they have good gallery representation. Their work is getting out there. They're making a name for themselves or they might be already very well known, but they haven't really had the opportunity to work in our medium in the way that we could help them. But we see something in, in their work that we say, I think if they could work in paper, they could really do some great stuff. So that, residency, the lab grant residency is nominated by a board committee from our board and in discussion with Amy and I and our executive director. So it's sort of, you know, we offer that to basically one artist a year. And sometimes those projects go on for several years because those people tend to be very busy. They may have big museum exhibitions and other things like that. So they may not be able to come in on a regular schedule, etc., But all of our residencies, they're not sort of live-in residencies like you might go to a lot of places and do, where you just stay there and that's all you do. We really find that the best thing to do because of the collaborative nature is for the artists to come in, work with us. The work dries, they go home. we take it out once it's dry from the drying system, or we air dry things and we look at the work dry, we see where to go next with it. So it sort of develops over time. Workspace residency is the same idea. It's a little bit shorter in format. As I said, we take four artists a year and they have to be New York state residents. That's just because we get funding from the state. So that kind of is the the limitation of that people ask all the time do we don't we have any for international artists and and we would like to it's something that we've talked about for a long time and are working on and if we find funding for it we would certainly like to be able to do that but right now our workspace residency is four artists a year and it's a rotating panel of jurors every year so People apply sometimes many years in a row, and then all of a sudden they get it because the jury's different every time. And they're looking for slightly different things, but they're looking for artists who haven't really, they don't, maybe they don't even use paper in their work, but they have the potential to do something interesting with paper. And so then we have those artists come in for an orientation and they don't really work together. They they get paired with either Amy or myself as a collaborator rather than sort of being in a group format. They meet each other at orientation and when the, when the work gets exhibited, they see each other and they might see each other in passing in the meantime, but they don't really work together with each other. They work with one of us. So they really just get kind of full studio support for their projects, which means that when an artist comes in for their studio days, the workspace is five days and that doesn't sound like very much, but before all of those days, we're prepping materials, we're having conversations, we might be making tests, we have meetings, etc. So the artist comes in, if they need eight hour abaca and 10 hour linen and 14 hour pulp paint, that's all ready for them. And so they walk in and they can just work and just concentrate on making things so we've had conversations and looked at things that they want to try or work with and so then i would decide or amy would decide what pulps we might start with what things we should try technically how to approach the work if it's sculptural maybe they have to make molds or bring in armatures etc so if they want to work dimensionally there's you know some prep on their part or maybe they want not to work 2d but they're making stencils or some other kinds of things that we'll use to create the work and then we see where it goes so My workspace residents from last year, one of them finished despite COVID, and one of them still working. So, you know, we're a little bit off schedule at the moment just because of COVID, but we are continuing that program.
0: Okay, well, which lends to the question of like, how has COVID affected your ability to continue?
1: Well, I think like everybody, COVID's affected our ability to do certain things. But we're still very busy and we're doing a lot of other things. Actually some of it's been interesting. I mean, the initial shutdown, New York was shut down for, you know, several months and we were closed completely for three and a half months. And that was of course challenging. And we we did do a lot of lectures and things for college classes and do other kinds of things virtually and give some webinars. But we were closed from the studio perspective and then when we reopen we're fortunate that we have 8,000 square feet so we could kind of spread ourselves out so we sort of you know spread into the studios we have three paper making studios one is the education studio and we're not holding classes right now one is the professional studio where we usually hold all the artist projects and one is a community studio where we were having artists who were members come and work on their own. And since COVID, we've basically been not doing community and not doing education. So we have three studios. That means I can be in one room doing something and somebody else can be in another room doing something else. And you know, in the third space, another project can be happening. So we can sort of socially distance ourselves that way and when we do have artists come in, we can have, you know, we have fortunate to have one of these buildings in New York with like steam heat that's crazy and like pumping out constantly. So it's like you want every window open and all the fans on anyway. So when we have had people come in, we can kind of spread them out and feel like we've got air circulating or being really safe, et cetera. But we've also focused a lot on doing additions and things that we don't need the artist to come in for necessarily. We can do tests and send them to them and maybe get ready for them to come in. We've been doing a lot of that.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, everybody keeps talking about like, oh, COVID, everything shut down, I'm so bored. All this, I'm like, I, I don't know what they're talking about. I am busier, more active, crazier now. Than I probably was before COVID, because before COVID, I could be like, well, you know what, I'm going to take today off and go to a museum, but I can't do that. So I'm like, okay, let's get to work. We, this is our work time. we this is we, we're. It's very interesting because I feel like it's like we're limited on what we can do, so we have to become more creative with our time and our space and our money and everything like this. So like, we're. I feel like I'm actually getting more creative work done during this time than what before it.
1: Yeah, I think actually a lot of people have said that. Many of the people that we work with have said that it's actually been very productive. Not all of it, of course, you know, especially the beginning. I think everybody was very freaked out. And then a lot of the events over the summer were really stressful, you know, protests and things in this country really affected a lot of people. But then I think a lot of people, their solution has been sort of, you know, to keep saying, keep making things, right? And kind of keep, keep focused on that. And without some of those, as you said, some of these other distractions, I, w- I would normally be having to go to somebody's opening or having to do some other events and there's none of that. So we can just kind of work ourselves like crazy. <laughs>
0: Oh, yeah, there's going to be a glut of artwork available by the time this is all done, because all these artists and creative people have actually had the time to be able to sit and focus on their work and get things done instead of being distracted by all the other, oh, I should do this or I can do that kind of uh, lifestyles.
1: Right. Exactly. And then, you know, we've all also gotten used to in this time doing zoom phone calls and meeting, having meetings that are virtual. So we have some artists who we've worked with for a long time, who don't live in New York or don't even live in the U S and we had sort of always been like, Oh, well, we got to wait for them to come. You know, now we're like having conversations with them virtually and making tests and things and not waiting for them to come to the studio. So in some ways we've been able to pick up some projects that had been kind of somewhat backburnered because we thought, well, you know, the next time they're here, well, whenever that's gonna be, we'll do something on this. Instead, we can actually sort of move forward on some things that, you know, we can send to London or somewhere else.
0: No, okay. If you don't want to answer this question, feel free to say no. But like, how has this affected your financial stability slash ability to get funding? Because a lot of the what I noticed, like like arts councils and things like this, they had existing grants, but then they shifted them to be like COVID relief grants. So now there's not this pool of general grants that are a lot of organizations and nonprofits use as their their you know sort of their plan for budget fund stuff that suddenly is not available because it's being redirected i don't mean it's a bad thing but i do believe it impacts existing nonprofits
1: it definitely does impact and i think what we've seen in the immediate kind of crisis mode you know we of course like everybody were really panicked about it but we were able to get some COVID relief funding as well as have some of our existing grants be continued and given a little bit more of a flexible sort of reporting schedule. So, you know, in other words, if it was for education for kids to come into school, you know, from schools, we instead shifted it to doing web-based programming or something like that. So that worked out. So We didn't really lose money, but where I feel we're going to have trouble is down the line because, you know, right now everybody knows COVID is a major issue. There's been a lot of, you know, sort of effort to, to sort of keep the community working And we've been very, very fortunate to have some wonderful funders who understood that and, you know, really have given us the sort of, you know, gone on faith and said, okay, we know you, you're going to keep going and keep doing good stuff. But where I see the problem is actually the budget cuts that are coming. So that the city and the state funding, all of that kind of thing that we would not that it was our whole bottom line, but it was sort of, you know, there and it was really important and it helped us a lot, that uh, many of those things are multi-year grants. So we might have something where we're okay for another year, but then what's gonna happen past that, because the, all of those criteria and guidelines are gonna change because there's not the money that there was a couple of years ago, pre-COVID and the sort of focus on helping the arts community and helping sort of rebuild that tends to a little bit go out of people's consciousness you know so in the immediate crisis everybody thinks about it and then everybody forgets but due weathered a lot of storms you know 2008 economic crisis definitely set us back and so it's it's always a little bit of a up and down we hope we can ride it out
0: I totally understand. I used to run a nonprofit myself. And sadly, I ran it miserably and, and it closed. So like, I totally understand the the issues that nonprofits are going through. And I understand the granting system in and of itself is so nebulous and difficult to get through. So like once you already sort of have that funding, it sort of becomes a little bit of a fearful thing of potentially losing that funding in the future uh, by no fault of yours. And that's what this scenario is doing is, you know, it's setting up a scenario where in the next couple of years, there's going to be some difficulties for a lot of nonprofits.
1: Yeah, I think it is going to be very difficult and I mean, I uh, really worry about a lot of the nonprofits that are younger than us. I mean, the ones that haven't been around for as long, we at least can look at our track record over time and show potential funders sort of that we've been doing this, you know, for over 40 years. And that does help because they sort of want to see that the money is going to go to something that's going to keep going. And... I mean, I, I worry for us, but I worry for a lot of our colleagues and, you know, people who are in all sorts of different nonprofits in, in New York City, but as well as everywhere.
0: Oh, absolutely. Now, you mentioned also additions. So this is also some other little, it's, uh, My in my mind, I went from funding to like, Earning money so that you sell artworks as well through you. I've seen it on your website. I assume you also have some gallery space that people can come in and potentially see some works. Has there been any change in the online purchasing of, uh, of the artworks?
1: Yeah, I think we have done some Artsy, for example, has hosted some auctions and we've done, we did our benefit completely online this year. We usually have a fall benefit where we would put the work up in a gallery, usually a space that is donated to us from one of the other galleries that's a little like Pace or someplace would let us use their space for a couple days. We would put up all the work and we would have sort of a benefit event. And there's no sort of events right now. So everybody's switching to sort of all online benefits, which has got its own challenges. But at the same time, it's not as much to organize those. It doesn't take as much time to set it all up.
0: You don't have to cater it.
1: You don't have to cater it. You don't have to move the stuff. You don't have to hang it up. So you know there's some pluses to having the online versions of these things, especially right now. And we do have a gallery space, but we don't have very much work up. In fact, we've sort of spread our offices into the gallery space because we don't have visitors right now. So we can kind of use that space in other ways at the moment and try to find other venues to show the work, you know, whether it's going to be through art fairs that some of those are online too, and maybe for a while still, or through our website or through auction, like artsy kind of auction.
0: Well, that's kind of the question I'm sort of leading on, which is the idea of have you you know because of all the situation of the world you've had to do some little zigs and zags and make some different choices and maybe do things you didn't want to do before but they've become the thing to do so like have you had anything that sort of works seems to for you all work better or some things that did not work out well that you tried because we all try technologies that don't work um so what, what kind of experiences have you had
1: Yeah, I think that's a good question. And I'd say we're still figuring that out a lot, you know, but (laughs) of course. We all are. Right. But I I think doing webinars has been interesting. You know, we've had people, different people from all over attend things, whereas some event in person, maybe we wouldn't have had, we would have had sort of, I don't want to say the usual suspects, but we would have had a lot of people who are already Kind of in our network, unknown to us, and already people who would come to things that we would do. So that's been kind of interesting. Giving lectures for college classes all over the country has been fun. And, you know, many of them are trying to make paper at home or do some sort of related projects. So they couldn't have necessarily come to us, and we might not have gone to them. You know, we might do something where the school has the money to say fly me out there and teach a workshop but a lot of times that would be sort of prohibitive and now that we're sort of doing these online it's much more accessible and affordable for people we're just actually doing the donation based rather than charging a set amount that's been i think a real plus and then you know it has been interesting to try to figure out how to addition artists work or work with artists on a project without them being in the studio and that, that is challenging. I mean some of the projects definitely have yielded some interesting results that I don't think we maybe would have gotten quite there but they just take a lot longer if you're going back and forth with people without having them kind of physically present, especially if they haven't worked in paper already. For people who we know or who know paper, then maybe we can have a dialogue back and forth a little more easily because they sort of understand the medium and it's a little more of a fluency. But for people that we are working with, who we started working with pre-COVID and have not come in, some of those projects We've done some work on them and then decided, you know what, we're just gonna wait till everybody gets vaccinated because this is just too hard. And this would be really easy to get there in the studio. We would just get to something that we all thought really worked and looked great. And without that sort of hands in the pulp moment, without the sort of physical tactile experience, it's just too difficult. So it's been it's been interesting. You know, we've learned some things along the way about how to work with people remotely and some sometimes that works and sometimes it only works so much and then you've got to actually do the work in life.
0: Well, I mean, that's one of the things like okay, paper like I've tried to order paper online just as a consumer. So like I want to order some nice handmade paper to do some work and like I've I'm never a fan of buying paper if I can't touch it. I'm I'm a very tactile because I mean there's a certain like you were talking about earlier like the sound of the paper, the the density of the paper, the literally the surface of it. So like these days like we kind of have to learn to do it online but i also noticed that a lot of people are being better with it because like they're shooting different angles so you can see the texture a little bit better some people are even making videos where like they'll they'll move the paper so you can see how it looks under different light this kind of stuff like the i feel like this is pushing the technology of the sort of the market of paper itself, uh, sort of forward in a way that makes it a little bit easier for people to grasp some of these technological things that that needed that that tactile interaction that we are sort of you know progressing beyond, I guess, or, or getting some new ways to accomplish.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. I think you know, paper is something that everybody wants wants to have a sample of or wants to touch or wants to sort of be engaged in physically and it is very difficult to shoot a bunch of white paper and have it look like it you know has anything different about this batch versus that batch we don't really do custom paper anymore i mean we we do occasionally but we really hardly do custom papers anymore but that's always been an issue with custom papers as people would say well i want this and i want to do that you know and can you make something that works that way and sometimes their idea and our idea isn't quite the same unless we have a sample so we basically have to make samples at which point you've kind of made a lot of what you would have to make anyway right (laughs) You made made all the pulp and pulled up you know a bunch of sheets, and then it's not really what they wanted or thought they wanted, or they didn't really think through like maybe they didn't think through like how they would actually use it, how a handmade sheet would go through a printer versus a commercial sheet, etc. So.
0: Oh, yeah. I had an experience in college when we just, it was new technology at the time was laser printers. And so I put papyrus through a laser printer because I was like, I got to push the limits. Let's see what this can do. And it ended up bursting into flames because the papyrus (laughs) caught fire inside. So, So little tip, laser printers and papyrus, bad combination.
1: Yeah, I could see that not working very well.
0: No, it didn't. The school was very unhappy with me destroying their brand new laser printer. I'm
1: sure. (laughs) Well, I think everybody who's interested in paper has put something through the printer that they probably shouldn't have, you know, and gotten in trouble for that.
0: I've broken more printers by putting outrageous papers through them. Like I keep trying. I really want that like inkjet printer that I can run like 600 GSM through. That would be amazing, but it, it's, it's close. It, it, it can, there are some that can do a reasonably good job at it, but it's still not there. All right. Something that I was thinking about because we're talking about all this, the being in print shop and stuff. I remember when I was at school in at the Corcoran, one day i would just happen to be walking down the hallway and in the printmaking shop was this older guy just sort of you know talking with one of my professors and and, and all these students were sitting around going like oh my god do you know who that is and i was like no i had no idea who that was turns out it was it was robert Rauschenberg, who was just there just winging off an edition with one of my professors so you know What I wonder about is like, for you, working with such an esteemed institution, basically, have you had any circumstances where somebody came in that's like, oh, my God, can you believe this person's here?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, we definitely have that. And there's definitely people who sort of aren't, well... I mean, we're really fortunate. We have mostly... uh, I would say all the artists we've worked with have been really nice people, you know? And it's not that some of them aren't more demanding than others, but it really does make a difference if people are you know, somebody you can talk to and somebody you can work with. And I would say most of them are much more down to earth than, than you think they would be. But there are those sort of like starstruck moments where you feel a little bit, well, the pressure of having to essentially make really good work in a medium that has many many different variables and factors from you know sheet forming to pressing to drying all of these things and you think if i screw this up this is really bad <laughs> because here they are here they are i mean we had dohosa come in to do some thread drawings and he's a wonderful person run- wonderful artist but we were all working really, really hard. And then, of course, the moment that something's not working well, some folks from his gallery and some, a bunch of visitors show up at that moment where you're sort of pulling your hair out and you just think, can I just become invisible? Can you just not see me while I'm sort of cursing under my breath and like trying to get this right and fix it? Like, Don't look too closely right now. Don't take the picture at this particular moment. There's always those moments in the studio where you feel sort of like, why is it that the moment when it's on display, you know, something goes really terribly wrong? But paper is also a pretty forgiving medium. I mean, it's compared to a lot of mediums. We have artists all the time say, it's amazing. You can kind of fix anything. I would say, well, I can't fix Everything, but I can fix a lot of things because it's all still wet, you know. So there's a lot of things that if something gets, you know, damaged in the process, you drop your glasses in the sheet. Which I've done, or in, you know, <laughs> done something right that you knocked into something. You the artist puts their hand down, you know, on a place that it's going to show. A lot of that can be sort of touched up or padded out or somehow hidden because everything's still really wet and malleable so there's a lot you can do to fix things can't fix everything of course but there are a lot of tricks that we have of fixing things
0: okay i have an incredibly specific question because i want to know it for myself i work on paper and i traditionally am a photographer so i traditionally just put things under mats and put them in frames there you're done but I'm working more in a three dimensional quality, but still working with paper, floating a, a, an image like in a frame kind of thing. What's your, what's your recommended sort of methodology to sort of combining, putting that together? Cause you don't want to do glue or tape or anything like you want. What do you want? Linen tape? Like what's the right methodology to adhere a, a work on paper inside like a floating frame?
1: Yeah, I think, well, a lot of our papers, it's very challenging because the more translucent they are, the more that you, you know, if you, if it's opaque, if it's a heavy cotton sheet or something then definitely linen tape, just like you would, if it was being matted would be perfectly good. And if it's something where it's going to show, then you get into sort of having to maybe Tone some Japanese paper or something so that it doesn't show it's the same color as the background, etc., or come up with some sort of other solution. Those are always very challenging things, but I would say with floating things, you know, remember that paper expands and contracts with moisture and heat and humidity. So, actually, you don't want too much tape either. You want to give it some space so that it will do what it needs to do and not cockle or distort or something. So oftentimes the mistake people make is trying to hear it in too many places. And actually, usually less is more. You can, if you've got a lightweight work and it's relatively small, maybe two hinges at the top is enough.
0: Yeah, I used to be a framer and they generally told us two, two for lightweight, three for very heavy pieces basically. no right right well because also the the paper itself like over time with gravity it will you know if you do too many of those you'll start seeing them because the paper will start to sag yes
1: potentially potentially and 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 depending on where it's stored or hung etc you can have trouble with that. So, and then it's always good not to put the paper directly under the glass. So it's not touching the glass, but to actually have a little bit of space between the work and the glass because that otherwise will create other problems. Yeah. It'll create new wrinkles. It'll transfer moisture.
0: Oh yeah. Photographer. We have like glass is the bane of our existence. I totally understand. All right. Any topics that you would like to talk about that I haven't brought up yet?
1: I was thinking I would just like to say a little something about, you know, kind of the way that we work with sculptural works, which we need just touched on.
0: Well, it's interesting because I was asked, when I asked that question about the definition of paper, I was sort of waiting for you to, to try and expand beyond a, a surface because I know lots of people that use like paper as a medium, but create sculptural works with it. So it's not... a a sheet anymore it's it's a dense thing but still made with the 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 technique of paper making so that's where I was questioning the idea of like define paper
1: yeah well it is hard to define right but if you still take that same idea of pulp you know beating something down into a pulp and reforming it into something we work with A lot of artists who don't make 2D work, they don't make anything that's two-dimensional, flat, goes on the wall. They only make three-dimensional work. So we've, in the past few years, spent a lot of time, especially working with rubber molds, packing the paper into rubber molds while it's wet, putting it in our hydraulic press, pressing a lot of the water out, popping that out, and having a cast paper form in that way, that the artist might work on top of while it's wet still. For example, we did a project with Nari Ward, was an amazing artist, and we cast cardboard paper signs. So he wanted them to look like the signs that people hold up asking for money or things like that. And he took pieces of cardboard, tore them down to the shapes that he wanted, We had somebody make a mold of that using the original cardboard. I'm not a very good mold maker, so I'd rather send somebody else, send that to somebody else's studio to do. I don't trust myself with that. But you know, once we have the mold, we can make many, many pieces from that same mold and they don't all have to look alike because depending on how we pack in the paper, what we do with the edges, we can kind of change them. So from several molds, we get many, many variations. And then Nary, in that case, worked on top of the wet cast pieces with pigment, gold pigment, stencils, etc. So each of them is unique, but they're cast from a few different molds. So that's one way that we work a lot with cast paper. We also do what we call laminate casting. So if you ever made paper mache as a kid and you put some newspaper or something dipped in starch over a balloon and you made a a paper mache pinata, you kind of understand the idea of laminate casting. So just taking, we would generally form sheets of paper out of a pretty strong fiber maybe abaca, something like that. We partially press it, remove some of the water, and then you have this kind of dough-like paper that you can really manipulate sculpturally. So sometimes people are laying that over an armature or a form and letting it dry, either removing it after it's dry or leaving the armature underneath. And then sometimes people even work with it well again almost like a dough something that or like clay something that you sort of form into a shape you can cut it you can manipulate it with your fingers you can lay it into a form or a mold and let it dry and then have something that's dimensional in that way and always the questions with any kind of work. That sculptural is how you're going to dry it because it's it's a lot more difficult than drying flat sheets of paper. And the drying process is where a lot of things change. Sometimes people love that change and sometimes they don't. So sometimes we take a, a piece, for example, of very strong fiber that's been beaten a long time, wrap it over an armature, and as the paper dries, the paper is actually stronger than the armature and it will distort what's underneath it. Some people are really excited about that. How can we get it to do that more? Let's put it in the hottest room. Let's get it to dry really fast. Let's put all the fans on it. Let's see what else it will do. And other people are like, that's not what I wanted. I wanted it to you know, look the way it looked when it was wet. That's actually one of the hardest things about paper is that it looks one way when it's wet and another way when it's dry. And if you want it to look the way it looked when it was wet, it's pretty tricky (laughs) to get it to still look that way. So we do a lot of things where we control the drying or we try to slow it down. So we're sort of controlling how quickly something dries out the humidity in the room yeah well it's
0: it's it's like when you paint on the side of a piece of wood that the wood warps because the liquid's on the one side unless you also match it on the other side to balance it out kind of thing so like that drying process can actually literally affect it unless you have the technology and the knowledge to be able to control it like you're talking about
1: yeah exactly it's very much like that so if you've ever painted a canvas on one side and not done the other or piece of wood, something like that, you know, the kinds of issues with moisture and draw, how it can pull a lot. So we spend, we spend a good amount of time sort of strategizing how to dry things, babysitting some of the work that artists have made is sometimes almost more time consuming than having to make the work is sort of monitoring it while it's drying, rehumidifying parts, weighting down other parts, you know, things like
0: that. Interesting. Okay, I now have a bunch of questions. So, <laughs> you you mentioned like using molds and other technologies and things like this. So, paper making in and of itself is very old process. Have you found any technologies like very contemporary? So, I'm thinking like laser cutters, CNC machines. I don't know whatever other kinds of things you could do. Uh, that you can incorporate into this whole process or that people are finding interesting uses for uh, in an integrated way into the papermaking?
1: There's a lot of use for new technologies. We lately have had a lot of materials that we use as stencils or matrixes in some part of the process cut by a laser cutting bureau. So we would send that out to somebody and have them do that. We can we can cut stencils in house, but we also send things out. So that's very very important. Being able to design something sometimes on the computer is what people are doing nowadays too. You know, people have also worked over three D printed forms.
0: I was going to say, is, the, is there not a three D printer that works with like liquid fi- like paper fiber yet? Because if there isn't, that's your million dollar idea
1: right no there is there is it doesn't necessarily work with all the fibers i want to use right those things do definitely exist and they, they tend to make what, what i would call not very good quality paper as this the material but there are some artists brian queen in canada who's really interested in using 3d printers laser cutters all these things to make either molds or to form things, and he's done more research. And also, Magnolia Paper out in Oakland, California, they've done a lot with, they use a 3D printer to print watermarks. So, the traditional way of making a watermark, or a watermark is, we're mostly used to it from currency or something where you hold it up to the light and you see it. A watermark is made by having something on the mold or the screen when you form the sheet of paper that makes that area thinner so you see through the design of whatever that is because that was a thin area of the paper so magnolia's got a 3d printer where they're printing out things that they use for watermarks which is really fun and and i think has a lot of potential and is a great way to sort of use new and old technology together we sort of like the the surface characteristics of paper and a lot of the things that we can get from the fibers themselves. But we've also done some research for artists and some projects where people wanted to adhere paper pulp to metal and paper is not gonna stick to metal. So how do you get it to stick to metal? We might press out all the water and use a resin or some other kind of material that is designed to adhere to another kind of surface. So there's ways that that could be, you know, chemically sort of investigated more than we've done certainly.
0: Okay, one other thing that it, that popped in my head is I remember a conversation I've had with papermakers in the past about the like the sheer volume of water that goes into doing it. And While there are many ecologically friendly ways to accomplish this, like, so what are some of the ways that you've figured out because, you know, water's not cheap and all the other resources to create paper are also not cheap, you know, even just the space that you all have is not cheap, especially in New York. So uh, specifically, ecologically, what are some of the things that you all are doing to try and sort of conserve overuse?
1: Yeah, it's a real challenge. I have to say that that is the biggest thing that we use we use a ton of water we have all the water that comes into the studio filtered you know so that it's really pure and it won't degrade the paper so fresh clean water is really important we try to use water because we are using such vast quantities of water we have special floors with drains in them and you know, we had to put plumbing and all this into our space, but conserving water is challenging, is really challenging. I know there's people who have drainage systems where they reclaim kind of all the water that they have been using. Steve Costell has done some really wonderful work, for example, trying to figure out like how to form sheets, have it all drain, reuse that water, purify it use it for other things that's never really worked for us partially because of the scale that we're doing things when you're making a 40 by 60 sheet of paper and you've got all that water you can barely lift the mold with two people you can't worry about how much of that ends up on the floor
0: just to be clear I'm not one of the people that's like super ecologically minded. It's just a question. I make no oh, yeah. judgment.
1: It's, it's, it's a really important question. It's something I think about. I think about that at home. Like I'm always trying not to use too much water at home because I feel like in my life, I'm just using so much water all the time and so kind of surrounded by water. But wherever we can, we try to drain out things into a bucket that we use to clean or not just use water to, you know, spray everywhere and clean the floor, but scrub it or whatever, you know, however we can, uh, we do that. And then with our, we, we call it trash pulp, our discarded pulp, the pulp that's kind of, you know, not useful anymore, either it's gone bad or it's got too much dirt in it, or, you know, fell on the floor or whatever, that kind of thing, we press all the water out and we can recycle that material. And actually we have some artists who really love the trash pulp. They'll just <laughs> go to the corner where there's a bucket of like all kinds of scary stuff, you know, um, anything could be in it. And they, they want that material there. They love the sort of surprise of all the different colors and textures and, materials put together and they don't mind if there's little hair in it or (laughs) whatever else fell on the floor, some blue tape that, you know, got stuck to something they're okay with that. They love to use that material in their work too. All
0: right. The last thing that I thought of was, can you offer me three artists that are working now that you think we should know about? Wow. Basically people that are not already household names or, or, big, but like people that you think should, people should, uh, pay a little bit more attention to.
1: The first person who came to my mind was one of the first artists I worked with that was one of Amy Jacobs's residents at Dudenay. So when I first took the job that I have now, she was in residence and her name is Lena Puerta and she is a wonderful artist who uses mixed media in many interesting ways, but she's really developed something very interesting, I think, and very special in paper. She has an amazing color sense and can combine a lot of materials that you just wouldn't think could work together. She uses fabrics, sequins, all sort, feathers, all kinds of materials that seem very disparate and separate and she will kind of layer those in between layers of paper and then do something with stenciling, what we call blowing out or removing some of the paper pulp using water pressure so that you kind of carve back almost like scratchboard. You carve back into the wet sheet and you find or you discover some of these materials that are sort of in the layers or in the different parts of this. And for me, working with her, seeing her approach to how she works really kind of opened my eyes to the idea of like not thinking that, you know, just because you're working with paper, everything has to be all natural or all somehow cellulose fibers that all go together seamlessly. You know, a lot of my training, from going to University of Iowa and then studying in Japan was all based in natural materials, natural substances. So kind of combining these surprising artificial materials with natural materials in ways that I would have never thought worked together. I think her work is really amazing. And she just has a, a really good sense of how to pull those things all together and make them really cohesive. So she's one artist that I think is worth looking at. So that's Lena Puerta. The other artist who came to my mind right away is somebody who was my workspace artist last year. Her name is Trisha Wright. She is originally from England, English and Irish background, and lives in New York. And so she came to to me as a workspace artist, and she's. I actually just finished a big project for the MTA. So she has a subway station with some of her work in it, which is great. The reason I thought of her is because again, you know, just sort of intuitively, she developed a body of work with us, with me in the studio, where she manipulated paper pulp by hand, sort of mushing it and forming it into I'm not going to be able to describe this well without any visuals, but people just have to look it up into something that kind of looks like skin and kind of feels very visceral and very much like something we are used to looking at and yet very foreign. And she put these together, these pieces together again with other kinds of materials. She used dirt, she used peat, she was very much in her residency, thinking a lot about the DNA and the sort of going back into our own, mining our own histories and kind of going back through like our sort of what what's inside us and where we come from. And she was very inspired by the Shamus Haney poem that begins. We have no prairies, which is about this idea that you know, in America, we go out to discover ourselves. We go to the prairie. I mean, I I maybe don't, but you and I both went to Iowa, so maybe, maybe. Uh,
0: yeah, we went to the prairie. Yeah,
1: we went to the prairie to discover something. But that for the Irish, you have to dig down. You have to go down. In, there's nowhere to go out. You go into the soil. You go into the bog. You go into the peat, and through that, you excavate. You find. You discover these other aspects, these other things that you can pull out. So she made these really wonderful pieces that you'll just have to look up that were exhibited in our gallery.
0: I'll put links to all these people in the show notes.
1: Great, that's terrific. That were surprising to me because I guess the way that she approached it was so physical and so intuitive, you know, sort of manipulating the material in ways that just by pushing pulling, layering, she got these textures to happen and this kind of very, very kind of physical, visceral response that I think we have as viewers to seeing this. And I, I was just surprised by how fluent she was with something that she never worked with before. So that that's really interesting to me. And then I, if I only get one more artist, it's hard to pick, of course. <laughs> Um, but maybe just like, cause I'm talking about physically manipulating paper. The person who came to my mind was Jared Beck, who is a, also was a past workspace artist who we've worked with, uh, worked in the studio and he's worked at Tudene for, for years doing, he's very, very tall. So you have to know that first.
0: Yeah. find very tall.
1: Well, I'm not very tall. So, well, that's why I'm
0: asking, because it's all relative. So, like, right. what's very but tall?
1: Well, over six feet and with long arms and long limbs. So, you know, he works in paper in a sort of performative way. So, he's making rubbing the pa- thin layers of paper with his arms, with his forearms, as we're forming sheets. So, we had one day when he was in the studio, we had two 40 by 60 molds side by side next to each other and a 30 by 40 mold. And you can imagine, so this is a big long stretch of freshly formed paper and he walks down that stretch rubbing his elbow through these freshly formed sheets, pulling the paper and manipulating it until it sort of comes together and comes apart. So it almost makes like a lace pattern and so in making that kind of layer we then take that layer and transfer it to to stack it up to basically couch it or which is what we call laying the paper onto a felt from the french word coucher to lay down so we we take all these layers pile them up one on top of another and you're getting this kind of different laces that are going on top of one another and forming something that again you can't really tell exactly how it's made but it feels feels familiar and strange at the same time it feels like something that's comfortable and uncomfortable and i think you do have some sense when you look at these works that there's a lot of hand involvement. There's a lot of physicality that's involved in it. You don't necessarily know that he's running his arm down it and by the end of the day his forearms are, you know, red and raw and covered with pulp and color, pigments, etc. But you have a sense somehow in those works that they're very physical. And he also did a, a really amazing installation at Smack Melon, which is a another nonprofit gallery space that's near us in Brooklyn, in the Dumbo section of Brooklyn, where he used a lot of a lot of our discarded pulps, again, the trash pulps, the things that we can't use. He would just say, I'll take it, I'll take it. And he would take all of this material and made these giant sheets and made this huge moon piece these big black sheets and hanging work hanging from the ceiling of this giant space. You'll have to look it up to see what I'm talking about. But just the scale of it, this sort of materiality of it, I think was really amazing to be able to walk under this work and to see paper and interact with paper something that we're used to maybe 18 inches from us, right? In a book or a notepad and have it be this surrounding space that to me was really an exciting thing and so those are those are three artists who i think could all be known better and are all doing really interesting things with paper and have continued to work in paper not just during their residency at but after you know so of course that's that's what we want right we we hook you and then you (laughs) you have to work in paper forever
0: fair enough all right last question is any advice
1: I would say my advice is if you're interested in paper just start start anywhere start somewhere so you know sometimes we get caught up I certainly can get a caught up in what's a good sheet of paper or how can I make this piece better or how can can this be really exceptional in some way whether it's perfectly white sheet or it's beautifully formed or it's giant or it's this or it's that but at the same time i think there's a lot to be said for just making anything you can make and i've seen amazing things that people have made with no equipment just you know at home with a blender and some ingenuity and so it doesn't have to be all you know precious fibers that are very difficult to obtain or difficult to work with it doesn't all have to be something that is maybe what you would think of when you think of paper. You know, if you drop your definition of paper and you think, well, it could be anything, it could be sculptural, it could be flat, it could be any of these things, then remember that toilet paper is very good at what it does, right? So each paper can be very good for its purpose and it's just a matter of what you wanna do with it. If you wanna take something that has the quality of a paper towel and print on it, it might not work that well. But if you're just interested in exploring paper and just seeing what you could do with paper making as a medium, there's some great books that are out there. Helen Hebert who worked at Dudenay many years ago has written a lot of really good books and videos. So, you know, you don't have to be in a paper studio with a wet floor and full drainage and all of this kind of equipment and English molds, et cetera, to be able to make paper you can you can really make it anywhere and that's actually what's pretty exciting about paper too is that it's fully accessible at every level you can make it no matter where you are as long as you have just a few simple things if you have no water you have a problem but (laughs) if you have water and if you're in the desert if you can reclaim your water and reuse it you know you can still make paper